Good morning. We are here today to discuss Parsha Asfayefi, which is the last Parsha in Sefer Bereshis. Today, the title of the class is Forging Our Unique Oneness. And what I mean by that is that we're going to discuss the Jewish people and their identity is definitely something unique in the world. This week, we're going to talk about the unique oneness factor. Next week, we're going to talk about the identity factor, and how to revitalize it. This month, the month of Teves, is dedicated by Sylvia Levang and family in commemoration of the 10th yard site of her beloved father, Yitzchak ben Moshe. Isaac Sterenthal lived a full of purpose and unrelenting optimism. Very responsible, firm, honest, and loyal. You could always count on his support and his word. Isaac's love of family and his quiet acts of kindness are transcendental. His family has been deeply inspired by his example and are forever transformed by his abundant blessings. We just last week celebrated the bris of Aaron Levy and his wife Malka and their son uh, the, who had a bris, uh, Ezra Yosef. And we are looking forward to the ongoing generations coming from Isaac Sterenthal living up to all of those values above mentioned and we are honored and privileged to consider them our family and we are looking forward to all the future generations. A major and palpable positive outcome of the current war in which our nation is embroiled in many ways devastating but nonetheless a major positive outcome is the love and caring that is being expressed by all types of Jews towards one another, right? We all have been blown away by so much love, so much demonstration of caring of all different types of Jews from all walks of life to each other in Eretz Israel. incredible support, incredible sacrifice for one another, the unbelievable ongoing sacrifice of the Israeli people today, sending their children into war, too many of whom are being either killed or horribly injured, etc. Nonetheless, there is a pervasive feeling in the nation of all different types of Jews from all different types of religious perspective and worldviews caring for one another. I'm sure many of you have heard the stories, so many stories of what happened that tragic, horrible weekend, so many who were nebuch in the wrong place at the wrong time, but also so many who were somehow miraculously saved from that terrible fate. And again, many of the stories reflect not only the miracles of Hashem, but how the miracles of Hashem have come about by the deep caring and demonstrations of love of one Jew to a fellow Jew. So this is something that the world is literally talking about, literally talking about the new energized, galvanized love of Jews for one another. It's a very clear outcome of the horror that Hamas and their supporters have inflicted on our people. We are, bottom line, internally recognizing that we are all much closer to each other than we previously realized. 
So many of us have these awakening feelings of closeness to soldiers, to different Jews than us, and just feeling bonded with one another that it's almost automatic. So the subject of our class today is how did this oneness come about? How did this unique oneness get forged from the beginning of our nationhood? So we're going to begin with trying to map the flow of our parsha and the correlation of ideas from the, the different aspects of our parsha, how it all comes together and why it really is the conclusion of this incredible book that we call Bereshus. So the parsha begins with Yaakov Avinu's awareness that he will die shortly and his desire to have his son Yosef bury him and asking Yosef to swear that Yosef will take Yaakov up and bury him in the cave of the Machpelah in Hebron. Now, part of what happens in the next verses is a unique relationship between Yaakov and Yosef is developed in that Yaakov blesses Yosef along with Menashe and Ephraim in a separate and apart conversation from the rest of the tribes. So we're going to try to deal a little bit with why, again, Yosef is being highlighted and his children, Ephraim and Menashe, are being highlighted as having a unique relationship between Yosef the and his sons and Yaakov Avinu. We are then taught an incredibly tantalizing sentence where Yaakov specifically says, gather and listen to Yisrael, our fathers, chapter 49. And he says, the Agidolachem, uh, chapter 49, sentence one, gather and I will tell you that which will happen to you, the Acharis Hayamim, in the end of days. Now that phrase, in the end of days, by almost all accounts, Ramban says everybody agrees, I think it's by all accounts, refers to the Mashiach, refers to the era of the Mashiach. Yaakov, in an explicit sentence in the Torah, is telling us that he wants to give us information regarding the end of days. That means the Messianic era. So, what's disturbing <laughs> is that it's a tantalizing sentence with no follow-up. The next thing that we find is that the Torah describes the blessings of all the tribes. It does not talk at all, or I should say, not clearly and not much about the Messianic era. There are allusions to it, according to most commentaries, in some of the blessings that come, especially in the blessing to Yehuda. But at the end of the day, it's not at all uh, living up to the expectation that Yaakov says, come and I will tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. Then the blessings continue with what seems to be a very uneven treatment of Reuven and Shimon and Levi. That means even though Yaakov says, I'm going to bless all of you tribes, he doesn't seem to really bless Reuven and Shimon and Levi. It either seems like a very harsh chastisement of Reuven, Shimon and Levi, or it uh, is even the opposite of a blessing, almost like a curse. Okay, And that's what happens after. Then, after all the blessings of all the tribes are discussed, we have a recap of Yaakov asking to be buried again in Eretz Israel, 
in the cave of the Machpelah in Hebron. That's the cave where Avraham and his wife Sarah, Yitzchak and his wife Rivka, Leah are already buried. And Yaakov is asking for burial of himself in that cave as well. Now we have, very interestingly, after that, the death of Yaakov and a really strange interaction after the burial of Yaakov, a really strange interaction post that burial between Yosef and the brothers, where the brothers say that Yaakov commanded them to tell Yaakov, uh, tell Yosef that, yeah, that Yaakov would want that Yosef should forgive the brothers. To which Yosef basically responds that he can't do anything to harm them. And this is not uh, his purview uh, to decide anything about which ha happened to the brothers because he doesn't replace Hashem. Essentially, that which happens for whatever they did wrong is up to God and not up to Yosef. And moreover, says Yosef, you intended something bad by selling me, but uh, Hashem considered it and intended it to be something good so that I could sustain you and bring you into becoming a great and huge nation. And therefore, he says, don't worry, I'm going to continue supporting you. He comforts them and he speaks to them very warmly. Then the Torah concludes with the fact that Yosef and the brothers, uh, his father's household, live in Egypt for 110 years. Yosef has descendants. Then Yosef himself adjures, causes the brothers to swear that Yosef himself will be taken out of Egypt at the time of the redemption. When there is a time that the Jewish people are remembered, says Yosef, Hashem will surely remember all of you and you will bring up my bones from this place. By the way, take me up at that time back to the land of Israel. Yosef dies. He's 110 years old. He's embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the end of the parasha. So the, that's the flow of ideas. And here are our questions. What is the connection between all these topics? What is the flow of the parasha? How do we tie it all together? It seems to be that somehow all of these topics and ideas are critical for the end of the book of Genesis, of Bereshis. And the question is why? Why is all of this a fitting conclusion to the book of Bereshis? Number two, why are Reuven, Shimon, and Levi still counted among the tribes given their misdeeds? There, it's even very difficult to find the positive in anything that Yahoo says to Reuven, Shimon, and Levi. I'm not saying there isn't any, but it's hard to find. It's not so simple. It's very much more clearly a chastisement. And according to many commentaries, Reuven, Shimon, and Levi are actually backing away seemingly from Yaakov and Yehuda himself when it's his turn to be blessed. Rashi learns Yehuda starts backing away and uh, Yaakov has to call him close and say, don't worry, I'm, I'm going to treat you differently than Reuven and Shimon and Levi. That's what Yaakov has to tell Yehuda. So that speaks to the difficulty that Yaakov is really, really blasting Reuven, Shimon, and Levi. So if, if they're so bad, why are they part of the blessings? Why are they part of the Jewish people? Why are they, in fact, members of our nation? Not only members, but critical cogs of our people in that they represent three of the 12 tribes. Why? If they don't deserve it, if they didn't live up to it, if they destroyed it, if they did terrible things, whether it's Shechem or in the moving of the bed, or maybe worse that Reuven did, it's not so clear, or in that which they did against the city of Shechem, which Ramban very much takes them to task in our parasha, saying that Yaakov was very unhappy with what Reuven, Shimon, and, uh, or, uh, yeah, with, uh, with what Shimon and Levi did, certainly, to Shechem. So why are they included? 
That's the second question. Third question is that even if you want to say that they are included, okay, and that somehow will overcome, you know, the fact uh, of the things that they did wrong, but the chastisement shouldn't seemingly part of the blessings, right? We have a whole section here in the Torah where the Torah is telling us that Yaakov is blessing his children, right? So if that's true, then why is the statement of Reuven, Shimon, and Levi part of these blessings? And the way that you know it is part of the blessings is because the conclusion of all of the blessings of the tribe says these are all the tribes of the Jewish people, 12, which means we're referring back not only to Yosef and Yehuda and etc. We're also referring to Reuven, Shimon, and Levi. And this is what their father said to them and blessed them. Each one, according to his blessing, he blessed them. That's chapter 49, sentence 28. So very clearly, the Torah is referring to that which Yaakov says to Reuben, Shimon, and Levi as a blessing. Why is it part of the blessings? Seems to be nothing but blasting them. Now, that sentence, again, that I just mentioned, chapter 49, sentence 28, Rashi tells us a very interesting teaching in that sentence. And over here, we're going to have a major piece of our lesson today. Rashi tells us that when the Torah says that Yaakov blessed all these 12 members, all these 12 tribes, he blessed each of them according to his blessing, but it concludes it with he blessed them. It doesn't just say he blessed each one of them according to his blessing. It says each one according to his blessing that he blessed them collectively. Says Rashi that at the end of the day, even though Yaakov did each did bless each one of them separately, he blessed all of them with all of the blessings so that all the Jewish people somehow get all of the Jewish blessings. Well, if that's true, so then why is he singling anybody out? We should have, you know, all the tribes are gathered and he should just look at them collectively and say collectively good things about all of them. And if he needs to give them some chastisement, he'll give them some chastisement. But bottom line is, you know, he's blessing all of them. So why is it broken up as individuals? And then afterwards, we're, ta we're taught, but really he's blessing all of them with everything. Uh, moreover, how does that really work philosophically? You know, one of the very important principles of Judaism is that all human beings are different from one another. Each one of them has a purpose. That's why we're given different mental abilities and different personality skills or abilities, right? Everybody's different because everybody has a unique purpose. Well, if that's true, you can't just jumble everything together and say, okay, you all get all the blessings. Clearly, we're all different. So what does it mean that we all get all the blessings? And then finally, a question that we alluded to before, our question number five, is if ultimately Yaakov is unable to reveal the end of days, even though very clear this clearly Yaakov says, come and I will share with you the end of days. The end of days, like we mentioned, refers to the Messianic era. If Yaakov was unable to do that, why does the Torah bring it up? It's like an idea that's aborted, right? Yaakov wants to tell them about Mashiach, the Messiah, is unable to tell them. So why is it included in the text that he wanted to, if it ends up being a non-starter, that he doesn't actually end up telling them about the end of days? This is the, um, you know, really tantalizing part of the, of the parsha, because everybody more than ever, I shouldn't say more than ever, but like always, and seemingly even more intensely than previously, want to know the story of what's going to unfold here now in the end of days. We would love to know the answer. So it's just uh, kind of really leaving us hanging is putting it mildly. 
Let me also just mention one philosophic idea here for just a moment. I'm not going to go so much into it today. If anybody wants to discuss it another time or afterwards, let me know. But it would seem to me that the reason that we refer to the Messianic era as the end of days is not because time ends and it's not because humanity ends, because that's definitely not true. We definitely accept the fact that even if there is, so to speak, an end of days, it doesn't mean that time is ending. If anything, we know there's an infinite future. So why is it called the end of days or the last of days? My suggestion is because days really speak about the evolution of mankind. You have one day, you have another day, right? Tomorrow is another day. We talk about how things evolve and change over time. There's a concept of days, one after another, that refers to a series of changes and evolutions that take place. At the end of days doesn't mean the end of time. It means the end when further human evolution and free choice will no longer be necessary. And instead, there will just be, so to speak, one day, which is really how the rabbis do refer to the ultimate infinite future, one long day, meaning the, the permanent infinite future will be like one long day. That means we're not going to have this kind of series of processes and evolutions that take us to new stages of human existence. That evolutionary period will be over and it will be about an infinite experience between man and God. Okay, that's just to discuss why it's perhaps called Acharis Hayamim. So the questions are: What are the flow of the? What is the flow of the parsha? What? Why are Reuven and Shimon and Levi still counted among the tribes given their misdeeds? Why is their rebuke a part of all the blessings? As Parashi at the end, Yahweh blesses all the tribes with all the blessings. So what's the point of breaking it up individually if you're just going to give everybody all the blessings? And finally. Why does Yaakov, if he, why does the Torah, I should say, not discuss Mashiach if it brings it up at all? Either don't bring it up at all or bring it up and discuss it. So I'd like to begin our explanation with a little bit of a philosophic discussion. That is that Bereshis, which means Genesis, the name of our book, the name of the first parsha, the first section in the Torah, Bereshis, is a description of the formation of the foundation of creation. So let's look at it simply for a second. We talk about the creation of all the world, the, the earth and the water, the sun and the moon and the stars, right? The, the animals, the fish, creatures of all the land and mankind. Then we discuss human procreation. We discuss the free choice that man has about good and evil. So that's the section of Horatius. It's very clear to understand that that's a foundation of understanding the future of the world. Now, when we look at the entire book, therefore, if it's all called Bereshis as well, right, the book of Bereshis, that means on some level, everything that the Torah describes in the book that we call Genesis is equally important as the foundation of creation. And that means from the book of Bereshis forward, when we start next week, the book of Exodus, the book of Shemos, what we're talking about is how creation unfolds after it's all finished being formed. So therefore, we need to understand that the end of the book of Bereshis are the finishing touches of the foundation before everything else is able to unfold to achieving its ultimate purpose and future. Okay. So that's foundational concept number one. Number two is that it's only an infinite creation 
that is sensible for an infinite being to create. So if we just ask ourselves, we know that God is infinite, we know he created the world, does it make sense for God to make a temporary move? Does it make any sense for God to do something that will be short-lived and have no ultimate purpose? And the answer is no, because why would an infinite being get involved in anything that is not part of an infinite future? Well, what's the point? Now, unless you want to make what I consider to be a basically childish argument of God is entertaining himself and he gets a little kick out of it, you know, that's just ridiculous for so many reasons. First of all, God is not, you know, a little kid. And second of all, really even just in the concept of, of, of even just that, forgetting about it's an immature, stupid thing to do. In the span of infinity, any length of time is inconsequential. A blink of an eye takes longer than 6,000 years in comparison to infinity. And therefore, it doesn't even register, right? So for an infinite being to do anything that doesn't even register is just completely nonsensible. Okay, so therefore, a premise is that in order for God, who is infinite, to create a world, it has to be that that world is intended with an infinite future. Now, of course, we know this so many different ways in the rabbis, but really our sentence is saying that. Because if there is an acharis hayamim, if there is an end of days to which Yaakov alludes, that means there is something that will happen after this evolutionary period called creation is over that graduates into a, a longer term future. Okay, And that's one of the reasons that the Torah is referring to it here, because we have to understand that everything that's happening is for that long-term future. Principle number three, because Hashem is one, everything that he does is interconnected. So all that Hashem creates, all that Hashem does, whether it's the six days of creation or his involvement in creation moving forward, is all meant to be interconnected. And everything that exists is meant to be integrated and interconnected. And so therefore, the only worldview that is truly legitimate, when I say worldview, I mean, the only logical way to look at the world based on everything we know, that God exists, that he is infinite, based on our conclusions that we just mentioned, is that all peoples of the world, that means all human beings of the world, have a purpose, and the purpose is meant to be a long-term purpose. That's the only legitimate view of the world, so to speak. Now, the therefore is that the only nation that has this worldview and has a responsibility to bring about this worldview are the Jewish people. Because it is with the Jewish people that God created covenantal relationships. And it is the Jewish people that are determined to live a life that demonstrates that God is one. That all people are intended to be connected to him because all people are created in his image. And that the Jewish people are committed to bringing about a unified world that recognizes the truth of Hashem's existence, and that that's the only way we actually graduate into a long-term future. Because the relationship that Hashem and our forefathers, the ones that are buried in Hebron, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Leah, 
Rachel, Rachel is not buried there, Sarah, Leah, right, Rivka, all of those forefathers and foremothers, the only reason that it's our people that has this worldview and the responsibility to bring it about is because of the covenantal relationships that Hashem established with our forefathers that are buried in Hebron. And that's, of course, what we are referring to in our prayers when we say, when we say on Shabbos afternoons, we have it in our prayer service in Shwana Esrei, you are one, your name is one, and who is like you? Who is like you, the one nation in the land? That means only the Jewish people represent this unique oneness that reflects the unique oneness of Hashem. And the reason that the Jewish people reflect that is because they are committed to making sure that the whole world, in consonance with Hashem's vision and mission, has a long-term future bonded with Hashem that experiences a relationship with Hashem in the ultimate Acharis Hayamim future. And our starting point, I'm going to share with you a beautiful midrash that I worked on yesterday with uh, Moshe Mermelstein, I'm going to share with you a beautiful medrash that really speaks out this point almost explicitly. And before we say that, let's just make sure we understand that the reason that Reuven and Shimon and Levi are included in the Jewish people is because all the brothers, including Reuven, Shimon, and Levi, are unified in this mission of oneness, in helping one another, in being committed with each other, to bringing the name of Hashem to all creation, uniting all creation. And in fact, this was the purpose of the yeshiva that according to the rabbis was set up in Mitzrayim in Egypt, that when Yehuda was sent down to Egypt, the Yosef set up to establish a, a yeshiva, wasn't a yeshiva uh, university only for the Jewish people, it was for all the world to learn about the truth of Hashem, which is the same as the yeshiva that was set up by Shem and Aver. It wasn't set up for the Jewish people. Our forefathers did, yes, learn in those yeshivas according to our rabbis. And therefore, that mission, that is the mission of bringing the name of Hashem to all creation, and that mankind is meant to have an ultimate future, all of mankind, and that they need to be aware of Hashem and that the mankind itself needs to unify, that was the purpose of those yeshivas as well. So listen to this beautiful medrash, which is a medrash shochertov. It's uh, in the midrash in Tehillim. You can find it in the Alpha Shimonia as well on a sentence that King David says, don't be jealous of the wicked people. Don't have jealousy of the people that are doers of iniquity. That's what the sentence says. King David, who is, of course, the scion of the Mashiach, says, don't be jealous of the wicked people. Don't, you know, lust after their lifestyle, the people that do iniquity. So here's what the Medrash says. After the war of the four kings and the five kings, Avraham met up with Malki Tzedek. Malki Tzedek is also known as Shane in the rabbis, who is the son of Noah, who was on the ark. Now, Malki Tzedek was the king of what we call Yerushalayim, the king of Jerusalem. Avraham, after the war of the kings, where he fought on the side of the five kings and released his brother Lot from captivity, and he gave all the people back to the king of Sodom, Avraham goes to Malkit Tzedek. Malkit Tzedek makes for 
Avraham a feast of bread and wine. And Avraham says to Malki Tzedek, you know, I'm, I'm a little jealous of you. What merit did you have to leave the ark? What was the merit that you had to get out of the ark, right? You, you were alone in the ark for all that time. What merit did you have? Says Malki Tzedek, it was the tzedakah that we did. The, the righteousness, the kindness that we did, the tzedakah, which is interesting because his name is Malki Tzedek, to which Avram says, what do you mean? There are no poor people. It was only a uh, few humans. What was the tzedakah that you did? Says Malki Tzedek, day and night, we were putting the food in front of the animals. We gave the animals to eat day and night for the entire duration of our stay in the ark. That's why we left the ark. To which Avram says, wait a second. If in the merit of feeding animals, you left the ark, then how much more so if I commit to feeding people and to doing tzedakah with people, how much more so that I'll also have a tremendous reward? Now, obviously, the question is what's going on over here? You know, who, why did he need a merit to leave the ark? Were they were meant to stay in the ark forever? Like, well, what is that? Why, why does he need a merit to leave? But what's the answer? The merit is that he gave, uh, the, that they gave collectively uh, food to the poor people, to, to the animals. They gave food to the animals, and therefore Avram will give food to poor people. And by the way, this is, then it's after this, according to the Medrash, that Avram builds a shell, which is either a motel, or it's a place where people will gather, and Avram would give them food and drink and teach them about Hashem. It comes after that story. So my answer is very simple. The idea that this measure says, and it really says it explicitly, is we shouldn't be jealous of wicked people because at the end, everything that a wicked has, a wicked person has and does, it finishes, it evaporates. There is no long-term future in that which wicked people do. The only way to do things that are enduring and long-lasting is to do that which the righteous people do. And of that, Hashem wants us to be jealous, meaning Hashem wants us to examine the deeds of righteous people and how they do build a long-term legacy through their deeds and to act in kind, that we should learn from them, we should crave that, we should be jealous of that, and we should do like that. That's what, that's what this measure says. And so what Avram is saying to Shane, to Malki Tzedek, he's saying, listen, to live in an ark, that's a static, non-productive, non-evolutionary world. That's not a growing world. What was the merit that you had to leave an ark, which was basically stationary, where they were not supposed to or allowed to procreate, where everything was in limbo and they only had that small enclosed world? How did you merit, after the destruction of the world, to become part of a world where there is a long-term future, where you do procreate. What did you do to merit that long-term future? <coughs> and I really have to thank uh, Moshe Mormost in pointing out this measure to me because it's a beautiful concept. The measure is saying that the way that we get to a long-term future is specifically by doing acts of generosity and thinking of others because that's Hashem's interest in the world. Hashem wants that long-term future of creation should happen. And so that mindset of Avraham, that he was jealous from shame, according to this Medrash, is the reason that the Jewish people, Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and their, their bonded 
covenantal relationship with Hashem is the long-term future of this world. That's what the Jewish people stand for. That is why we are unique and uniquely bonded because we recognize this mission of Hashem in the world. We are committed to this long-term future of the world. We are committed to bringing it about by virtue of helping people develop their own relationships with Hashem. We are committing to help people have long-term futures. And that is our responsibility as the children of these people of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Leah, and even Rachel, even though she's not buried there. You know, I, I don't know who caught the, the speech of the rabbi from Harvard, which is very moving when he was talking about lighting the Hanukkah candle. I think his name is Rabbi Ezrahi. And he was talking about nobody in Harvard is standing up for the Jews where they have to hide the, the menorah afterwards because it'll be uh, defiled. Of course, we know what happened at the congressional hearing, right? So I would just like to kind of disagree. I don't disagree with the fact that people should be standing up for the Jews, but I don't think that that's our most important message. Our most important message is that Jewish people stand for the long-term future of a world that is kind to one another, of a world that promotes the existence of one another, of a world that doesn't believe in a global domination, of a world that believes in principles of truth, justice, and kindness to one another. That's what the Jewish people stand for. And if people are not going to stand up for that, then so much of the world is in tremendous peril. It's not about the Jews needing help from everyone in the world. It's about the fact that the purpose of the world needs help. We need to recognize that God's purpose in the world is for a long-term future for all of mankind. For everybody who's arguing, you know, that, uh, you know, you can't uh, attack Hamas or, you know, uh, there's genocide happening in Palestine. Everybody who knows anything about the history of that region knows that the Jewish people gave Gaza to those people to live to be well, to build hospitals, to build colleges, to build communities, and left them alone to do all that, plus aided and supported all of that. But instead, they took all of that aid and support and used it to foster their own genocidal mission against the Jews. And the problem with that, again, is not that Hashem won't save his people and that the Jewish people are in peril. The problem with that is that's a perversion of what mankind is meant to do, and the Jewish people are committed to fostering a world of a long-term future for all of mankind. Now, because of that, Reuven, Shimon, and Levi are 100% tribes. Because even though they did certain things wrong, and it's a big discussion what they did wrong in Shechem, we're not getting into that today. But one thing that they are committed to is the brotherhood of the Jewish people, the mission of their forefathers, that even though they were blasted by Yaakov, they want to be on the team. They want to support everybody in the worldview of making sure that Hashem is known to creation, of making sure that they work out their interpersonal differences and that they work on making the world educated and understanding of its purpose and long-term future. You know, the fact that there are people today that believe that having children is a problem is exactly the opposite of what Avraham 
learned from Malki Tzedek. It's exactly the opposite of what Hashem wants in creation. And that's what the Jewish people need to stand for. The fact that we are committed to one another, even when we've hurt each other, is how the book of Bereshis ends. It ends with a conversation that is difficult, that is inconclusive, that is hard to swallow, but the commitment is still there. Even after that conversation, where the brothers are, are saying to Yosef, you know, our father said that you have to forgive us. And Yosef is trying to comfort them, but it doesn't seem so clear how it ends. They live together for the next 70 years. Uh, I should say uh, 53 years, whatever the exact calculation, 63 years, whatever the exact calculation is, they live together as a family with Yosef helping them and then working with each other, uh, having that yeshiva, doing whatever they're doing in Egyptian society and with one another, that's how they live. That means that they were all committed to the same values that were passed down by Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and therefore the flow of the parsha is Yaakov telling us, listen, our homeland is Eretz Israel. The basis of our nation are those couples that are buried in Hebron. That's where I need to be buried. That's what you all have to recognize. That is, has to be front and center in your worldview and mission. Everything that we just learned about Avraham in that story with uh, Malki Tzedek, that is our worldview. And therefore, Yaakov needs to be taken up there. And the parasha concludes with Yosef also saying, you need to take me up to Eretz Israel. Okay, he's not buried there, but you need to take me up to Eretz Israel because that's our long-term future. And that's why Reuven and Shimon and Levi are still counted. And that's why it's part of the blessings, because the fact that they're willing to undergo that chastisement and still be on the team, that tells us of the unbreakable oneness that we have as a people. That's why the rebuke is part of all the blessings. We can take rebuke. We don't have to end the relationship. In today's world, people who disagree agree to not have a relationship. In the Jewish world, people who disagree agree to go to shul together. That is the difference right there. That's why the rebuke is part of the blessings. And as per Yaakov, all the bro brothers are included in all the blessings. Now we can understand that very well. We'll go about another three minutes and take any questions and com comments. All the brothers are included in all the blessings is the same thing as saying when you have a unified mission, the job needs to get done. And if you don't have the right pieces, meaning the people most naturally suited to the particular job, other people need to step in and do that job. A very clear example, which is discussed in this week's parsha, as per the Ramban, are the Hashmonaim. The Hashmonaim are from the tribe of Levi. They are the priestly caste of the Jewish people. They're not meant to be the kings. They're not meant to be the main warriors of the Jewish people. But when push came to shove and nobody else was standing up for Judaism and the identity as outlined to us by the Torah, those people, Matisahu and his sons, were what stood up for the Jewish people, took control to fight against the enemies, to actually vanquish them, and then to take charge of the future running of the Jewish people. Now, maybe they shouldn't have become kings, as Nachmanides says, but the bottom line is that they stepped and did a role that was not theirs, because that's what you do when you're on the same team. And so therefore, of course, different people are more suited for different jobs from each other. But when they can't do that job, part of our DNA 
is that because we're all committed to this oneness universe, that is God's one universe, we have to get the job done. We have to even do things that we are not comfortable doing if they need to get done. That's why the rabbis say, in a place where there is no man, strive to be a man. That means when a job is not getting done and it's not your uh, naturally uh, suited area of expertise, but it has to get done, so go do it. So of course, in addition to the fact that we're committed to the job getting done, we also get the special benefit of God helping us and giving us abilities that maybe we didn't have before. But it's all because we are unified in this mission of a long-term world where God's presence is known, where mankind is meant to endure for the long-term future, and we are built to serve one another, to help each other, to achieve that long-term future. And finally, as we mentioned, why is it that the Torah alludes to this end of days and doesn't discuss it? And that's the answer. The answer is because we're being told that, of course, there's an end of days. Our future has to be built on that mission of achieving that ultimate good for all people. And ultimately, it's up to us. Instead of knowing how it's going to unfold, we have to bring it about. We have to bring it about by being committed to it, by fighting through all the noise, all the persecution, all the false information of the world and bring about the ultimate truth. And the good news is that there are some people who know the truth and recognize the truth. And even if they don't have our backs, maybe ultimately they will have our backs. And even if they don't, at least they'll know that we're interested in that which is true and that we're fighting for that which is true, which is an ultimate future where God is known and mankind can live together as a unified brotherhood and recognition of God and not seek to dominate one another or to oppress one another, but instead where there will be an abundance for everyone and that God's truth will be everyone's truth. Questions or comments? Thanks, Akiva. See you next week. Hey, thank you. Thank you. And I'll see you next week. Mrs. Kanoff, would you, would you unmute? How do we do this? I, I can maybe do it. Hang on. I can, let's see. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah. a little confused. Um, was, was, was there a mention of um, yeshivas being made in Egypt? Ah, so that's a teaching of the rabbis that uh, I was um, alluding to, uh, where the Torah says uh, in last week's parsha that Yehuda was sent in front of Yaakov to show the way to Goshen. The rabbis say that he was set, uh, sent ahead to establish with Yosef settlement and yeshiva. So, so there were yeshivas established in Egypt to to sort of show them. Uh, the ways of Yiddishkeit or something? So my understanding is that uh, that just like the Torah said, you know, we have in Prophets, that from Zion Torah will emerge and the, and the word of Hashem from Jerusalem. And that means, <clears throat> as per all the commentaries, that means to the nations of the world, there needs to be light, there needs to be teaching that is shown to everyone. That's our responsibility for the long term and that and that yes, was being established in Egypt as well. Oh, okay. Well, I wish it had worked a little better, but <laughs> okay. You know, we, we could say the same thing today, but let's not kid ourselves. There are elements of that that even today are really working. I don't know if she was still on, um, but some of you may have seen one of the um, 
uh, retired pastors from Pennsylvania that was just on our class. Her name is Pat Wooliver. She was just on. Okay. Okay, wonderful. Okay, and is there a class next with your father? Uh, I'm waiting for my mother. I think maybe not. Let's see. No, no class. No class okay. for my father today. All right. Thank God he's okay. Just coming back from a, an appointment. Okay, thank you so very much. And everybody thank should you. be. Amen. Thank you. Anybody else? Abe, it's so nice to see you today. Welcome, welcome. Yes, Rabbi, Frida. <clears throat> you know, you said something important uh, for, me, for me, and I'm trying to process it as uh, and maybe some suggestions. You know, this idea of helping the Jews and why, and as everybody's reactive to the world relating back to our mission and in the Parsha, is that it's not because we are a minority and we're Jews and our chosenness as they see it. It's because of the ultimate message we have for mankind. And um, I don't know, what, what are we doing in that regard to translate that message so that because I often feel like we, ex you know, we want everybody to care about us when we don't always have the same commitment to others, but the uh, who we are is the, the piece that maybe even a lot of Jews don't understand, even though we figure it out when we're under pressure. So I just would like somehow some real time way that we could actively move that concept forward about you know, what do we stand for, period? It's not this uniqueness and privileged life. So um, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, so we're going to let uh, Dr. Finkelstein respond to that in just a moment. But but yes, that is the message we are trying to get out there. Um, it's uh, we, we, I have some short videos on it. We have this class on it. We have the, the Semitism class. Uh, that is the message that we need to be teaching one another, that the message of the Jews to the world um, is, you know, God's message to the world. And that's that's why this is so important. But uh, Dr. Finkelstein, you, how to? It's that, you know, in other words, what can we do in our small spaces to push this message forward? We have yeah. to have some grassroots doing this, and if it exists, I I, I would love to be uh, more knowledgeable. Yeah, Finkelstein. So, so before Yosef, there's an interesting story where, where before Yosef departs from Eretz Canaan, he's studying with his father about. This this kind of obscure mitzvah about uh, what about what to do when marauders on the road murder somebody and no one knows who did it, and uh, the town has to come. The people, the elders in the town, it, we learn in the Talmud, have to come and take responsibility by doing this really ornate ritual and breaking the neck of a calf and taking responsibility for the fact that someone was murdered on the road. So this is kind of your concern. It's like, what do we do about the fact that we live in a lawless world? Where, where, like that, why that mitzvah specifically is Yosef studying before he leaves. And when he comes and gets his father, he sends back wagons to indicate lesson learned, dad, lesson learned. We can't have a world where people aren't responsible. We need to be taking responsibility, not just for ourselves, but for the entire world. Some stranger dies in the street. That's everyone's job. It's everyone's job to make sure that we have a whole world that we can live in. And Jews have a central role in that. I've got it, dad. I'm home. I'm here. I'm ready to help the, make sure that to, to be responsible for the world, to make sure this marauding stuff doesn't happen anymore. We're going to make sure that everyone eats. We're going to make sure everyone gets through this together. And in that process, there's also going to be a special place for Jewish life. So I think our Torah kind of has that very explicit role for the for Jews in terms of understanding how the valuing of Jewish life 
is central to a flourishing world. And that those things aren't contradictions. They're actually mutually, mutually, not just compatible, they're mutually necessary. It's necessary that we, that we, that Ahavas Yisrael is something that transforms the world. People talk about tikkun olam, they think, oh, well, we have to help the world and blah, blah, blah. That's true. But Ahavas Yisrael, what it does is it, it, it cements our bonds and our commitments to one another, to one another stitched in through our, our common, our common mission. And then that is that, that's the, the ability that, that creates the ability that we have to be able to help the world, to be able to do that together. It's, it's, it's stitched in there. Not, not, it doesn't happen when one of us decides to become an environmentalist. It happens because as, as Jews, we can do things that, that any individual, no individual can possibly do. So that's really the kind of the, the way that we stitch those things together. After this meeting, I'm speaking to the United Nations special representative for the, um, for, for sexual crimes about what's happened with Hamas in Israel. And they're opening up a commission there on that subject. And it's a great example that these war crimes that happened to us, they need to be illegal and not just for us, for everybody, right? It's a perfect example of why people are so concerned about Jews and human rights, because they realize that whatever is true for us, it's necessarily going to be true for everybody else. They may not admit it, but they do ultimately recognize it. Yeah, so so part of the answer, uh, Frida, to your question that Dr. Nicholson is saying is that, you know, Ava Sishral is an important precursor, right? Because we have to be committed to that mission. What I'm saying is, is that that's really bringing Hashem's message to the world when the Jewish people are committed to each other. Then the message that goes out is not just about the environment or some general, you know, ecology, whatever idea. It's really about God and oneness and, you know, a long-term future. But as far as your practical question, you know, where are the grassroots movements activities to, to do? I don't actually know. I just think more gatherings of slower classes and more people is very important. And um, the short videos that we're trying to do are also hopefully helpful. Um, so if you could look at them and try to pass them forward, that is the way much of the world learns today is through short video clips. Um, if you have any other ideas, I'm available. Uh, you're, you're on you're on mute. You're on mute, Frida. I'm just going to suggest that, you know, every, there's been a lot of editorial about how we unified and it goes to the, you know, that's for the general world plus ourselves. The, they, they caused us to unify, but maybe in our unity, what happens next is the part that needs to be also communicated that in by doing so now, this is where we go because when we are, this is what can happen. And it is a model for mankind. I, in other words, we've we went we we over um, we went beyond the war, you know, being fought against. We have now unified in our we've been empowered to do elsewhere, you know, other things. And maybe it's a message for any, every American, everybody in the world, because I think that is the message when we are together for the social and moral good, then the world will be a better place. But we're too busy being bogged down by our differences in politics. So I, you know, I'm just trying to find a, some kind of elevator speech that kind of puts it together so that yeah. I can easily communicate it to people who have about one sentence worth of opportunity, you know, ability to hear, a, a, you know, a thought. So yeah. Thank yeah, you. no, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I got to keep working on it. Definitely good. Um, perfect. Anyone else? Or are we good for today? Thank you, Rabbi. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Good luck. Good luck. Yes, good luck, Dr. Finkelstein. Thank you so much. Great class, Rabbi. Thank you. Great.